Well, this morning, it's really a delight to me to bring to you what I think of as a portrait of God. You know, you might think of the attributes of God in the Bible as various portraits of who God is, that you look at one of those portraits and you're just stunned and amazed at the beauty and the texture, the richness uh, that, that is there. And when you're done with that portrait, then you realize, here's another one. Oh, my, it is stunning. It is beautiful and radiant. And when you're done with that one, you realize, oh, here's another. You know, and so these beautiful portraits that we have of God in the Bible. And uh, the, the one I'm going to talk with you about this morning is uh, really a, a way of understanding God that, number one, is, in my view, one of the most important in understanding rightly who God is and who we are before him. But secondly, it is one that is little talked about, little understood in uh, even good Bible-believing, uh, expositional preaching churches. Uh, it's one that I really, really think we need to get back onto the, the radar screen much, much more because of how impactful it is in a correct understanding of God and us. And uh, before we get into this, though, let me just give you a little bit of warning that you'll find this sermon this morning as we look at the greatness and glory of God. This sermon will result in a, a, a humbling of us. It just has to be this way. You know, I, I really believe that the culture in which we're, we live in, because of the emphasis on self-esteem, we want to make much of us, it inevitably, inevitably belittles God. Because we're the ones that want to be great. But honestly, friends, this is a huge mistake. Not only because it's not true. We're not the great ones. God is. Let's get it straight, right? We're not the wise ones. He is. We're not the powerful ones. He is. So let's get that straight. But also, ironically, when we try to make much of us and we belittle God in the process, we only bring about our harm. We bring about human flourishing, human, human joy, human strength when we realize how little we are and the privilege it is to be united through Christ to one who is so big, so glorious, so great, so wise, so rich, so huge in every way conceivable. To be related to him is everything. So indeed, we, we need to overcome this kind of urge that we have in, the, in our culture towards self-esteem and return to the Bible's emphasis on God-esteem. And when we see that rightly, oh my goodness, what liberation there is for our souls uh, when, when we see God as who he is. <clears throat> you know, another thing that strikes me that is a characteristic of our, characteristic of our culture that works against what I'm going to be showing you this morning is that we also live in a culture marked by a sense of entitlement. You know, we, we deserve so many good things. I, you know, in my memory, uh, I remember the first advertisement, at least that I can, I can recall, that had this entitlement idea in it. And that was from McDonald's, right? You deserve a break today. You remember that old advertisement? <clears throat> well, it kind of was the beginning, at least as I recall, of a culture-wide sense of how much we deserve. But my friends, if you're a believer, surely you must realize this, that there is only one thing before God that we are entitled to. We've earned it. 
We have it coming. We deserve what we get. What is, what is it that we're entitled to? Everlasting condemnation. And that's it. We, we don't deserve life at this moment. Breath that we're taking. We, we don't deserve food, clothing, family. All of these are in the category of <clears throat> gracious gifts of God. So, my friends, let, let's, let's realize how good it is to see God as he is and understand ourselves to be the little dependent beings that we are and rejoice that through Christ we belong to him. Wow, that is incredible. Okay, well, this morning we're going to do this, uh, unpack this portrait of God by looking at one attribute of God primarily. Uh, Others get involved in it, but one attribute primarily that is the self-sufficiency of God, the self-sufficiency of God. It may be an attribute you haven't heard much about, but we're going to unpack it this morning. It is really a, a beautiful and important attribute of God. And what we're going to do, it's very simple, the outline. I think you have a, an outline in your, in your worship folder that you can follow along. The outline of the sermon is very simple. I'm going to be, begin with a definition of God's self-sufficiency. Uh, following that, we'll look at two passages of Scripture that unpack uh, the, the self-sufficiency as taught, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. And uh, then we'll turn to implications and applications. So very simple, definition, passages, Uh, implications and applications. All right, well, let's begin with a definition. So we're all kind of on the same page. We know what we're talking about. What is it? uh, What what does it mean to say that God is self-sufficient? And it means this, that God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally Every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I have in mind everything that is qualitatively good. Uh, What the Puritans used to refer to as the perfections of God. What are oftentimes referred to as the attributes of God. Anything and everything that is qualitatively good. Wisdom, knowledge, holiness, justice, righteousness, goodness, love, mercy, and so on. I mean, you go, to, you go down the list of anything and everything <clears throat> that is qualitatively good is possessed by God within himself intrinsically. Now, you might wonder, do you have to say intrinsic once you've said it's within him? Isn't that the same thing? And the answer is no, it isn't the same thing. Indeed, you do have to say intrinsic for this simple reason. That it's possible to possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. You take them in from outside and are are dependent upon some source to provide for you what you lack until you take it in. A very simple example is is, is if all of us would, when I indicate, take a deep breath. Ready? Breathe in. Ah, feels good, huh? Well, that breath that is within you is not intrinsic to you, right? It is extrinsic. It is out there. You have to live in an environment where there is air to breathe or you don't live, right? You're dependent upon taking that in. So, yes, it's within you, but it's not intrinsic to you. So here's the point with the attributes of God, with all of 
these qualities that God possesses. He possesses them within himself intrinsically. That is, he is not dependent at all on anything that would supposedly be external to him that would provide for him something that he lacked. He has no lack. He has no need. He has no emptiness. He is infinitely full with everything that is qualitatively good because he possesses all of those qualities, all of those perfections within himself by his very nature as God. Okay, so he possesses these qualities within himself intrinsically and eternally, eternally. So there never was a time in eternity past Never will be a time in eternity future, certainly is not the case now, that God lacks any of these qualities. They are always His by nature. <clears throat> and then finally, He possesses these qualities, as the end of the definition says, within Himself intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure. Now, the term infinite is a negative term, not finite, right? So then it begs the question, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be limited, restricted, bounded. So get the point, my friends. <clears throat> Everything that is qualitatively good, every good thing that there is, holiness and justice and righteousness, wisdom and knowledge and power, everything that is qualitatively good, God possesses within himself intrinsically by his very nature as God. He possesses them eternally. They are always his qualities. And he possesses every one of them without measure, without boundary, without restriction. What an amazing God God is. Now, is this taught in the Bible, this self-sufficiency of God? Indeed, it is. Turn with me first to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, and we'll look there at verses 12 to 17. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 17. And we begin at verse 12, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, asks some rhetorical questions. Now, rhetorical questions, as you know, are questions whose answers are so obvious, you don't have to give the answer, right? Is the Pope Catholic? I think we know the answer to that question. Indeed. So here are some rhetorical questions that God asks us to consider to help us understand him. All right. So verse 12, look with me. Who do you know, asks the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who do you know who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who do you know who is able to do these things? Look at that first image in verse 12. Who do you know who has measured the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Imagine it. The Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been familiar to Isaiah in his day. Who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? What a great image of how big God is. You know, my, my wife and I have a wonderful memory 
of a time with our two girls when we were on vacation. This was along the, the Oregon coast in a little, a little town called Cannon Beach, Oregon, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, I guarantee you, just amazing. <coughs> and we had a house, uh, 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 we rented a, uh, a small little house there for a couple nights along the beach. Well, the first morning we woke up, I, uh, I had this idea in mind. So during breakfast time for our devotions, I read through Isaiah 40 and commented on this verse and, you know, about God holding the waters in his hand and so on. So then after breakfast was over, I asked my two girls. Now, this is important to know. Bethany was about seven. Rachel was about four. So they're pretty little, right? <clears throat> and I asked them both if they were interested in doing an experiment with daddy down at the beach. Oh, yeah. They're excited. So they grabbed their towels and we headed on down to the beach. And when we got there, I had them stand right along the shoreline where the waves were coming in. And I said, now, girls, what I want you to do is just stand right here and I'm going to wade out into that vast Pacific Ocean. And I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands. And I want you to watch really carefully to see how far the level of the ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. They want to see this. <clears throat> so I went out there and I said, are you watching? Yeah, we're watching. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. I said, let's look again. Come on now, watch carefully. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got on my knees, eye level with my two girls, right? And I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. I said, you know, I'm your dad. And I went out there into that Pacific Ocean and scooped up all the water I could in the hollow of my two hands. And you can't tell anything had changed. But I said, imagine a hand so big. Look at that ocean. If that hand came down and scooped up water, the ocean bed would be dry. And that's how big God is. Wow, what an image that it conveys of the bigness, the immensity of God. He goes on in verse 12. Who do you know who is marked off the heavens by the span? Span, at least my translation, this is the NESB in case you're wondering. Uh, span simply is the distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? I mean, even in Isaiah's day, this would have been an enormously meaningful image because in some ways he had an advantage over us, right? He lived in a part of the world where it's never cloudy or hardly ever, hardly ever cloudy, and there's no electric lights. So at night he would see this display of the stars. Now, what he didn't know, though, is that almost all of the stars that he sees are merely in our neighborhood called the Milky Way galaxy with its how many stars are there? Do you know uh, that the number has been upped recently? It used to be 100 billion. Now they estimate 400 billion stars make up the Milky Way galaxy. That's our neighborhood, you know, and, and how many other galaxies are there in the universe? And the answer is billions of galaxies. The Milky Way galaxy being an averaged sized galaxy with its stars separated by an average distance of 10 light years from each other. 
Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second takes 10 years to travel from one star to another. <clears throat> Galaxies separated by millions of light years from each other across the universe. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Wow. What an image, again, of the greatness of God. And continuing in verse 12, who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in the balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Imagine you hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains. Put the Rockies over here. Put the Himalayas over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. Wow. The power of God, the immensity of God is manifest in these verses, in, in verse 12. Now, verses 13 and 14 the rhetorical questions continue, but the subject now shifts from the power and the immensity of God now to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. So the author writes, who do you know who has ever directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. What's the answer to those rhetorical questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer, no one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Get this one, my friends. God wants no advisors. Why? There's a very simple answer to this question. Because he knows everything perfectly. That's why. What could we possibly tell him that he didn't already know? What perspective could we give to him that he wasn't aware of? And the answer is nothing. It's impossible. Now, now really, think, think of what I just said a moment ago. He knows everything perfectly. Think of those two words, everything perfectly. Contrast that with our knowledge. Oh my, this is humbling, friends. You know, honestly, God would do us a huge service if he would just help us understand for a moment of all the knowledge that there is, all of which is his, how much of that we possess. And I think the answer will probably be something like a grain of sand on the seashore, I suspect, is about the proportion of what we have compared to God, the vast, infinite knowledge that is his. Now, here's the second thing. Of all that we do know, right, that little grain of sand on the seashore, of all that we do know, here's the second question. How much of that knowledge, put it in quotes, are we correct about? And how much are we mistaken of, right? <clears throat> oh my, it gets really humbling here, right? Well, God knows everything perfectly. So he is never mistaken. He never misunderstands. He never has a warped perspective. He never spins anything. Oh, my. I wish that were the case in our day, right? I hate spin. Uh, that, that is so common with uh, the, the way things are reported these days. No, indeed. God knows everything perfectly. So, I mean, we really need to remember this when we pray. We don't come to God and instruct the Almighty on what he needs to know, so he will obviously do what we know needs to be done. No, we come with humility 
Yes, with boldness, absolutely. Through Christ, can you believe it? We have access to the throne of grace. So we come with boldness, but we come with humility, recognizing that as the the prayers that we bring, we always know God alone knows what is best. So we should pray as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. Indeed, Father knows best. (laughs) In this case, it's true of God, is it not? Okay, so we see then in verses 12 to 14, this display through these rhetorical questions, the display of God's power, his immensity, his knowledge, and his wisdom. Now in verse 15, we're about to see the implications toward us. And again, let me just warn you ahead of time. It is humbling. Look with me at verse 15. So now we read. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now stop right there. I want you to get what we just read. When he says the nations... He has in mind the collective totality of humanity taken together. All that we are, all that we possess, all that we know, all of our power. What are we like before God? A drop from a bucket. A speck of dust on the scales. I mean, those two images have something in common, don't they? They basically communicate something that is... Tiny, small, insignificant, inconsequential, right? I think, for example, imagine being at the deli counter and the fellow in front of you has asked uh, the, the, uh, the clerk to uh, give him a, a pound of sliced turkey. So the fellow has cut it off and, and put it up there on the scale. He's about to press the button for the price sticker to come out. And this, this guy in front of you all of a sudden screams. He says, wait a minute. And the clerk surprised. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. You're about to overcharge me. I'm sorry. Why why do you think so? There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, honestly, if you were in line behind him, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd probably hold it in. But wouldn't you feel like laughing? I mean, how ridiculous. A speck of dust on the scale doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? So what are we like before God? The nations, the collective totality of humanity taken together. We're like a drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, at least we're a drop. At least we're a speck of dust, right? Well, keep reading, my friends. It gets worse, not better. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The point of that at the end of verse 15 is God is so big, he plays with the islands of the world like a little kid at the beach runs sand through his fingers, right? Verse 16, even Lebanon, that area to the north of Israel with all of its forests and all of its animals, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, All the nations, here we are back again, friends, the collective totality of humanity considered together. What are we before God? 
All the nations are as nothing before him. Oops, I think we've been demoted, right? We've gone from drop and speck to nothing. You can't get worse than that, can you? You can keep reading. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. The Hebrew word is zero, less than zero. My goodness, I think we've hit rock bottom on this. Now, it is really important to understand here what God means in verse 17 and what he does not mean. Let's start with what he does not mean. When God says, when I look at the nations of the world before me, they are less than nothing and meaningless. It does not mean God does not care about those nations. They mean nothing to him. How do we know that cannot be the case? Well, how about John three sixteen? God so loved what? The nations, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, <coughs> that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So indeed, God loves the nations of the world. He gave his son for the nations of the world. This is not a God who doesn't care about the nations, right? But you don't, you don't have to go to John 3.16 to answer this question. What, 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 what can this not mean? Verse 17. You could just stick in Isaiah 40 and realize God cares about his people. The passage read for us a moment ago. Let me just remind you of the end of that. The end of Isaiah 40. Look with me again, beginning at verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, why does God want his people to get it, to understand how great he is, how knowledgeable he is, how powerful he is? Why does he want them to get this? Because he knows, unlike him, they get very, very tired. And need renewed strength. They, unlike him, are foolish. They don't understand the things they ought, to, they ought to know. So that when they realize their folly, their weakness, their tiredness, their frailty, they will go to him who has it all. You see it. That's why he wants them to get this. So I submit to you, this is not a God who doesn't care about them. So what's the point? Back to verse 17. What does it mean when we read? The nations are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And here's what I believe is being communicated here. If you ask the question. Given God's infinite greatness, his infinite knowledge and wisdom, his power, his his 
all of the qualities that are his. When you ask the question, what can the nations of the world, the collective totality of humanity taken together with all of our knowledge, all of our wisdom, all of our power, our prowess, what can we add to the infinite fullness that is God's? The answer is we can add nothing. Absolutely nothing, because God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. Indeed, he is self-sufficient. All right, one more passage. Look with me now in the New Testament to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Beginning at verse 16, we'll, we'll see, we, we see here that Paul is in the city of Athens. He is waiting for others to join him. And while he's waiting, he has been walking around the streets of Athens, observing how religious these people are, and has been telling them about the true and living God. Here's the irony, that in the city of Athens at, in the first century, they prided themselves in knowing about every deity. This was a very polytheistic culture. The, the gods of the, of, of, the, of the Greeks and the Romans, you know, uh, they, they w- was multiple. So they had uh, altars and inscriptions and shrines to every known deity that, that, they, that they were aware of in the city of Athens. They even had an altar to an unknown god in case they missed one. Well, the irony is this. The one god they did not know about happened to be the one and only true and living God. And Paul now describes who this God is in verses 24 and 25. So here we have theology 101 from the Apostle Paul, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you see self-sufficiency in those verses? It's there. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, I submit to you, if he doesn't need anything, it's only because... He has everything, right? He possesses within himself every quality in infinite measure. He doesn't need anybody to give him anything because he already possesses everything. He is self-sufficient. Now, Paul supports this understanding of God's self-sufficiency three ways. He begins in verse 24 by affirming that God is the creator of all that is. Look again, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. Okay, now think hard with me. This is worth it. What is the logical connection between God as creator and God as self-sufficient? Do you see it? God as creator and God as self-sufficient. Or putting it another way, what is it about the biblical teaching of God as creator that helps us understand that he must be self-sufficient? Do you see it? Well, think, what does the doctrine of creation affirm from the Bible? 
Well, it affirms that God created the world, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he brought it into being out of nothing. The Latin phrase you probably heard before, creatio ex nihilo, he created out of nothing. So that means, think about it, that means God existed before creation, and he's the very same God, right? He he has all of the same attributes. In fact, the, the creation cannot add anything to God. Because everything that the creation is, is a reflection of God, right? It's his power manifest in physical, visible form. His wisdom manifest in physical, visible form. His beauty manifest in physical, visible form. The creation then is a reflection of God and therefore it cannot contribute anything to God. He gave it everything that it is, right? You you might think of it this way. The dependency relationship between God and the world runs one way. How much does God depend upon the world? Not at all. He existed just fine, thank you, without a universe. And then he created the universe, right? So how much does God depend upon the universe? Not at all. How much does the universe depend upon him? For everything that that it is and every quality that it possesses is all from him. Do you see it? This is why the heavens, Psalm 19, declare the glory not of the heavens, but they declare the glory of God. Why? Well, here's the answer. What did the heavens have to do, for heaven's sake, with being the heavens? And the answer is nothing. The heavens had nothing to do with being the heavens. Who had to do everything with, being the hev- with the heavens being the heavens? God. So indeed, God as creator means that he stands independent of the universe, does not need the universe that he created, whereas the universe needs God for everything that it is and has. Secondly, not only did he create it all, but verse 24, he is also the sovereign ruler of all that he has made. So Paul goes on. In verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So he not only created the heavens and the earth, he is Lord of heaven and earth, which is just good biblical theology. To create is to own, and to own is to have rightful rulership over. Question, how much did God create? Everything. How much does he own? Everything. How much does he have rightful rulership over? everything. You know, we really need to remember this. I, I, I mean this. We need to call this to mind frequently that before God, vertically before God, we are owner of nothing. Now, ownership is a legitimate concept horizontally, right? Where you own certain things, I own certain things. So concepts like stealing or vandalism or things like that come to play because There are owners of particular things among us and others don't have the rights to what other people own. And that's that's fine at the horizontal level. But if you ask the question, what do I own, not in relation to you or others, but what do I own vertically in relation to God? The answer is nothing. I own nothing. What is the biblical category before God for how we possess what we possess? Not ownership, but stewardship. Stewardship. Very different concept, isn't it? Steward, a steward is one who treats 
the property and the goods of another in a way that the owner would approve. Right? A steward treats the property and the goods of another the way the owner would approve. So here we are, my friends. We are stewards. God's the owner. He's the one who has rightful rulership over all. Now, what does this have to do with self-sufficiency? Well, simply this, that not only did God create everything, but he has rightful rulership over everything. Hence, he's never in a position where, I'll use a very homey example, he never, he's never in a position where he has to borrow a cup of sugar from a neighbor. You know, he, he lacks something that somebody else has and he has to, you know, I hope, I hope he is willing to give it to me or she, she's willing to give it to me or I don't have it to use. He's never in that position because he owns it all. He is, you know, in Psalm 50, you might read that later on. It ties into this attribute of self-sufficiency. God there to his people, Israel says, if I were hungry, don't miss the if, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Indeed, he is self-sufficient. All that he has made is entirely his and entirely at his disposal. And then finally, the last basis for self-sufficiency is seen at the end of verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people, life and breath and all things. So indeed, God is the giver of all good things to all people. Well, again, I submit to you, if God gives all good things to all people, he must antecedently possess all things, right? He can't give it if he doesn't have it. So he possesses all things within himself. He is self Sufficient. He possesses every quality in infinite measure within himself by his very nature as God. Okay, implications and applications is where we move now. First of all, the first implication here is the is is the most basic one, and it's really the one upon all all the, the one upon which all the rest build. This is so important to see. We've already mentioned it, but I just want us to think about this for a moment together. So under implications, capital letter A, first one, because God is infinitely and eternally self-sufficient, God does not need the glorious creation he has made either in whole or any part, including his creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us or anything that we have to offer. Now, my friends, when I first learned this, which was for me when I was 18 years old, this is when God shattered my world by teaching me this truth that I'm preaching to you this morning. It's a long story. I won't tell you how that happened, but it was, it's an amazing story. <coughs> when this happened and God opened my eyes to see this, I honestly, I was devastated because it was exactly the opposite of what I learned in the Baptist church I grew up in. I, I grew up in, a, in a, a Baptist church for which I am grateful. Let me just say, because the story I'm about to tell you does not commend this church. But I want you also to know, I learned the gospel at this church. I was saved at this church. I, I, I learned to serve 
at this church. I mean, it's, my, my parents were charter members of this church. My dad was a deacon there. And I, you know, there were so many good things about this church. This just happens to be not one of those things, okay? So I remember a fifth grade boy's Sunday school class. I was a fifth grade boy. And uh, uh, I don't remember what the lesson was on, but I do remember this, that at some point, a friend of mine in the class asked the teacher a question I was really interested in. So I perked up. I lie, boy, I was all ears. I wanted to hear the answer to this. He asked the question, why are we here? Why did God make us? And without any hesitation, the teacher responded, well, you know, before God made us, he was all by himself. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with, and he was lonely. And there was this ache within him. And so he created us so that he could have fellowship with us. And, and, and relate to us. So this ache within him, this loneliness, would be removed. Uh, and, and she said, you know, really, the simple way of thinking of this is God created us to be his friends. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, wow, what a wonderful reason for existing. To be God's friend. I can be his friend. I, I, you know, I, I can do that. I mean, think, without me, without me, poor God. Poor, poor God. All by himself, lonely, empty. He needs a friend. I can be his friend. Now, now, my friends, oh, it is, isn't it just so belittling to God? This is an absolutely horrible doctrine that is out there in so many of our churches. I know this because I think the Sunday school teacher I had must have taught in a lot of churches, evidently, because I go around preaching and uh, I find out that a lot of people have learned the same thing. Now, now here, j- just realize, it, it, uh, it is so elevating of us. Oh my, aren't we important? Isn't what we do so important? Because God needs us to do this. You know, a lot of things took place in that Baptist church that really fit under this sort of banner of poor God. The most significant thing was this that I can remember growing up was missionary calls. I can remember missionary speakers telling about the needs in Africa or Asia or somewhere. And basically, you could, you could almost see in the background God wringing his hands, you know. And because the speaker would say, you know, with all those needs out there, if you don't go, I can still hear it ringing, right? And the implication was clear. Boy, God's hands are tied. If, if we don't help him out, he can't do this. So oh, it is so wrong. To think of this, so belittling to God and exalting of us, is it not? And you know what this promotes, what's, what, this, what this theology promotes is then how important my service is, how, how, how necessary what I contribute is, and so I want the thanks. I mean, it comes from me. I deserve the credit. This, honestly, this promotes a prideful understanding of what Christian service is. Just the opposite of what it ought to be. Follow along with me. Next point. So, indeed, God does not need the world. He does not need us. So then, capital letter B, why are we here? What is his purpose with us? Uh, and, and, of course, I'm thinking back to that fifth grade boy Sunday school class. What's the right answer to the question that my friend asked? And here's the answer, my friends. Though God doesn't need us, he loves us. Now stop right there and think just that much of the sentence, what that means. 
Because, you know, we, we don't know any relationship like this where somebody loves another totally unconditionally. Because even in a marriage relationship, which is meant to be the greatest expression of human love, is in marriage, we both know, my, my wife and I both know in our marriage, we need each other, right? She provides things for me that I, I desperately need, I to her that she needs, and so there is this mutual sense of interdependence. But with God, it is not this way. Here is a God who does not need us at all, yet... Oh, gasp. He loves us. I mean, this, this is genuine, pure, unadulterated, unconditional love. He doesn't need to do so. He doesn't get anything from it. He loves to give. So keep reading with me. Indeed, here it is. Though he does not need us, he loves us. And his purpose in creating and redeeming us in Christ is not that we might fill up some lack in him. He has no lack, but rather that he might fill us up with himself. He made us empty to be filled with his fullness, thirsty to drink of the water of life that he provides, weak to receive his strength, foolish to be instructed and corrected by his wisdom. In his love, he longs to give, to share the bounty. He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy and blessing that he knows infinitely all to redound to the praise and the glory of his name, the giver and the provider of all the good that we enjoy. Isn't that amazing, my friends? This is why we exist, not to help out poor God, but to become God-like in our lives as he pours himself into us. His wisdom becoming our wisdom. His holiness becoming our holiness. His, his love becoming our love and so on. God wants to pour into us his qualities so that we might become in finite measure, uh, as it were, um, th- th- those who experience the, the life of joy that God knows infinitely and eternally in himself. Here's a simple way to put an answer to the question, why are we here? Why did God create us? Answer, to be loved by God. Isn't that amazing? To be loved by God. Now, some of you might think, well, wait a minute. I thought the great commandment, I mean, doesn't this tell us the most important thing we are to do? I thought the great commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, indeed, that is the great commandment. But, but let me ask you this. With what do we love God? How do we get that love? Where does it come from? We love because he first loves us. So, indeed, we realize We need him absolutely for everything, everything to think correctly, to be remade, to be what what he made us and redeemed us in Christ to be. We need him to pour himself into us so that we might then experience the joy that he 
wants us, created us to know. Third point of application. Why does God enlist our service? Why does he enlist our service? Now, you know, let me just stop for a moment here and think with you about those missionary calls that I heard growing up. I bet many of you know exactly what I'm talking about if you're from Baptist churches. Uh, You know, here's the fact of the matter. God does not need a single missionary. Not a one. You know what he could do? You just imagine now he is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He he has all power, all knowledge, and he is everywhere present. Omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So you know what God could do right now in the next 20 minutes? And he could have done this any time in human history or multiple times. He could right now in the next 20 minutes speak the gospel in perfect dialect to every single person. And they and the whole world would be evangelized in the next 20 minutes. You see it? So he doesn't need, he doesn't need me or your pastor to do what we do. He could just work in every person unilaterally and do everything in you that instead he chooses. Ah, here's the glory of it. He chooses to do through vessels through whom he works. Ah, so why, why does God enlist our service? Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Acts 17, 25 says, God is not served by human hands. So which is it? And the answer is, it's both. God doesn't need our service. That's Acts 17, 25. So his call for us to serve, Psalm 100 verse 2, is a call, note, to participate in the privilege and the joy of the ministry of grace that flows from him into us, and then through us into the lives of others. We can take no credit. All that we have is a gift from him, and he, and he, and he gives this to us so that we, it can be used then in service to others. So indeed, we realize service is this privilege. Here's, here's a metaphor that at least the guys in this room, most of the guys in this room will understand. It's, it's God who says, where? You're in the game. I mean, I didn't hear that very much growing up. You know, I was small. You know, I tried, but uh, I didn't hear that very often. And when I did, oh my goodness, it was like you just gave me a million dollars. Where? You're in the game. I mean, he could have said, just stay in the, in the, in the bleachers, watch me do my work, marvel, be spectators. But oh no, I want you to play. I love you so much. I want you to play. <clears throat> I want you to be involved in the greatest work there is, my work of grace in the lives of others. But instead of me doing it all unilaterally, which I could do, instead of that, I choose to do that through you. As I fill you with all that I give you, you, like me, share the bounty. Share the bounty. And so you share with others what God has given to you. That's Christian service. So when you think of ministry or service, if the first words that come to your mind are words like duty, drudgery, uh, difficulty, sacrifice, suffering, all those things may be true at various points in Christian ministry. 
But here's the first word that ought to jump to our minds when we think of Christian ministry. It is the word privilege. Privilege. That God gives us a place to, 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 to work in His glorious uh, kingdom works. <coughs> Indeed, all that we have is a gift from Him, and He gives to us in order that we may then share the bounty with others. That's Christian service. Last point, and then with this we'll close. How can we know and be rightly related to this glorious, rich, and full God? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? If God is the one who has everything, God is the one who has all joy and blessing and beauty and truth and wisdom and knowledge. It's in God and in him alone. How are we related to him? And the answer is this, that in our sin, it is impossible for us to be related to him. Apart from God's grace, we are eternally separated from this one who alone is good and true and wise and holy and beautiful and joy-filled. But through faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God and enabled to know God. What love, what grace, what mercy, what joy is ours in God only through Jesus Christ. Do you see why the gospel is so glorious? It is forgiveness of sins, indeed. But that makes possible the next thing. We can only be in his presence forgiven, sinless, holy people. But to be in his presence, to receive from him all that he gives to us is the goal that he has for us. Indeed, only through Christ. So I ask have you trusted in Christ? If not, you will never know this glorious God. You will never experience the fullness of life that is possible only by knowing God through trust in Christ. Have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and your only hope of eternal life? If you have not done, do so today, I plead with you. And if you have, if you're a believer in Christ, which I suspect is most of us here, then do you realize what your purpose in life is? To be filled with him, right? So go after him. Why do you suppose he gave us his word? So that we would know him and through that experience the joy of being remade like him bit by bit throughout life as we pursue him. Let's close together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to consider together some glorious truths about you. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with rejoicing over the greatness of who you are, but also, Lord, to humble us, to realize how very needy and dependent we are, and to marvel at the richness and the bounty and the lavish display of your kindness toward us, especially through Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.